Uh, it's good to see you all here today. Um, just a few things. Uh, if you're new here, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FLM. Uh, if you are new here, if it's your first time coming to church or your first time just attending this church, uh, you are welcome here and uh, we'd love you to join us for some hot cross buns after and just for a chat to get to know you guys. Um, so today we have a lot to celebrate. Uh, so like uh, we mentioned earlier, it is Resurrection Sunday. Christ is risen uh, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Um, it shouldn't just be this one day a year, but every day of our lives is a celebration uh, about the resurrection of Christ. And just a few days ago, we, we gathered together on Good Friday uh, to have a prayer meeting. Uh, thank you for those who attended. Uh, one of the things that I began to think about during that prayer meeting was uh, just there's so much to be grateful for about this ministry. Uh, the worship team was like lit that day as well. Uh, and it was very special being able to sing and lift praises together with the worship team and the people that attended. Uh, another thing I was grateful for was that um, the parents, a lot of parents brought their kids. Uh, and I just wanted to make it clear, uh, the children are just as much a part of this ministry as myself, the VT leaders, and anyone else. Uh, I don't mind if you, if you come here with kids, uh, just so you know, I don't mind if kids run around, I don't care if they scream, I love that they're a part of us, part of our worship. So don't feel afraid, like don't feel like, you know, apologetic if your kid runs around, uh, I, I, I love it. So yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and another thing to celebrate, six of our members are getting baptized today at 4 p.m. Um, yeah. Give him a round of applause if you want. Um, but Josh Choi, uh, Joshua Choi, Joel Park, Daphne Young, Sarah Kim, Inso Park, and Rebecca Kim are all getting baptized, and that pool is being filled as we speak. Uh, so if you're not doing anything at 4 p.m., please come along, uh, celebrate this together with them. It is something to celebrate. Um, and having said that, um, we're going to jump into today's word. And we're still in Mark's gospel, but we're going to jump straight to the end. I stressed a long time, I stress each week when I do my sermon prep, but this week particularly um, because I jumped from chapter 5 straight to chapter 16. Uh, I was a bit flustered last night during my sermon prep, but we're in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. The word of God reads, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what an amazing day of the year 
where we celebrate arguably the most important aspect of what we believe, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says that if the resurrection never occurred, we're most to be pitied out of all people. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through Mark chapter 16, uh, that you would help us to unpackage what took place in Mark's account of the resurrection and what it signifies to your people to understand how the resurrection should shape us in the way we live life and the way we walk with Christ. I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anyone here born after 2005? No one. All right. Well, on the 17th of April, 2005, um, I don't know how many of you are aware of this event, but nine Australians were arrested um, in Indonesia. Uh, they were caught smuggling eight kilograms of heroin into Bali, and the news would later coin the term the Bali Nine in referring to these people. And I remember when this news of the Bali Nine, like, it, it reached all the media outlets, and I was quite shocked uh, because when they revealed the ringleader of this group, uh, it was a gentleman by the name of Andrew Chan. Uh, Andrew was actually someone I knew through a mutual friend. And he was a mutual, well, he knew my mutual friend because they grew up together. They went to school together. And I'd met Andrew a few times. My friend's family ran a tobacconist. And um, I'd see Andrew there drop, dropping by every once in a while to say hello, maybe buy a pack of cigarettes. But Andrew, you know, on the few times, the rare times I did meet him, he never struck me as someone that would pull off something like this or even think of doing something like this. Uh, but nonetheless, it was what it was. And Andrew's case went to trial. And, you know, most of you guys are probably aware, but he was sentenced to death by firing squad. Andrew's legal team would lodge multiple appeals to commute, to try and commute the death sentence to life in prison, uh, but every appeal that was lodged was rejected. Now, what most people don't know uh, was that following his arrest, Andrew would end up going, undergoing uh, a remarkable spiritual journey during his time in prison. Uh, Andrew would experience genuine conversion, and he would come to faith in Christ. Andrew enrolled in a certificate Bible course via distance, uh, at a seminary, and Andrew would, you know, he began a prison ministry, and he ran weekly English services to any of the inmates that wanted to attend. And as the as the day of his uh, execution, rather, drew closer and closer, uh, there was actually a lot of support that began starting. You know, people were writing to politicians, politicians were writing to the Indonesian government to grant clemency to Andrew, you know, to pardon him of this this death sentence. And I remember that mutual friend through whom I'd met Andrew. Um, he started to become very upset and very desperate. Uh, he shared with me later that he managed to actually get, um, get a hold of Andrew via a video call while he was in prison. And he shared with me the conversation that he had with Andrew. It was actually just days before he died. And he said to Andrew, said, Andrew, if there's anything that I can do for you, you tell me. 
If you want me to start a petition, I'll start a petition. Facebook groups, you want me to write to politicians, I'll stand in front of the Indonesian embassy. You tell me anything that you want me to do, I will do it for you. And he told me that Andrew looked at him and smiled peacefully. And he said to my friend, look, I appreciate everything that you're doing. And I appreciate everything that you're willing to do. But it's not necessary. I want you to know that I'm okay with death. And I'm okay with it because when I die, I know where I'm going. I know my place is in heaven. And I know the person that's going to greet me the moment I breathe my final breath. When I die, I know where I'm going. But let me ask you something. Do you know where you're going? And this took my friend by surprise. Because for him, my friend, you know, he went to, just like me, he grew up in the Korean church. He'd gone to church his whole life. He'd gone through the church system. But this conversation with Andrew really stirred something in him. Because it caused him to realize that he'd never thought very deeply about his faith. He never really thought, okay, what, what really happens after I die? Yeah, he learned at Sunday school that if you die and you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. But for him, he, he realized that heaven and eternity were more like abstract concepts that you learned, rather than something that you were moving towards, rather than something that you were living in anticipation for. And it was following this conversation that for the first time, my friend began to seriously think about eternity. And he seriously began to re-examine his priorities and how he should be living his life in light of eternity. Now, I share this with you because today we're going to be studying the resurrection of our Lord Jesus according to Mark's gospel. And as we do, I want us to look at this account through the lenses of eternity and through the lenses of eternity, examine how the resurrection should shape the way we live our life. Now, a bit of background and context um, before we unpackage today's passage. Uh, just two days ago on Friday, I mentioned that we celebrated Good Friday. And it's a day that we, we remember the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, tradition has it that Jesus died at about 3 p.m., and as he hung on the cross, bleeding profusely, his final words were, it is finished. The work of salvation, everything that was needed to save mankind, it is finished. And the moment he uttered these words, he breathed his final breath and he gave up his spirit. A Roman executioner uh, would then go, go around and break the legs of anyone that hung on the cross to speed up their death. But when they came to Jesus, uh, the executioner noticed that he, he looked dead already, which he was. But just to make sure, he took a spear and rammed it through the side of Jesus. And the gospel accounts teach us that water and blood came out. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever read this. Uh, you might have wondered, okay, blood I get, why water? Um, and there's actually a medical explanation for this. Because if you read through the Gospels, or if you've never read the Gospels and you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you'll know that Jesus was whipped a lot, like maybe a little bit too much. 39 times he was whipped and lashed to within an inch of his life. And if you actually study what this Roman torture looked like, you'd find, like what you learn is that the victims that were whipped 
to this extent. You know, like the earlier Jesus movies romanticized it and it'd just be like a, a few red stripes on his body and a bruise. But the reality was much more gruesome. Uh, skeletal muscles would be exposed. Underlying veins would be exposed. Sinews and probably part of the bowels of Jesus were left exposed. This kind of trauma to the body results, obviously, in significant blood loss. But what happens when the body experiences this kind of trauma is that the heart tries to beat faster. But given that there's significant blood loss, the heart might try to pump faster, but there's not enough blood to pump. And so what the human body actually does is it draws fluids from other parts of the body. And the result would be that these fluids, including water, would gather in a sack around the heart and the lungs. And so when the Gospels tell us that a spear was thrust through and water and blood came out, uh, what it means is that the spear penetrated the heart, probably causing it to explode, and the result was that the, the fluid that surrounded it, which was water, would have actually poured out his side. So there's no doubt Jesus died. If the crucifixion didn't kill him, the spear through the side and the heart exploding absolutely would have. Now, this took place on Friday, 3 p.m. And the reason it's important to remember is because of the Jewish tradition. Remember, we learned about the Sabbath a few weeks ago. Sabbath began at sunset on a Friday, and that would be at about, about 7 p.m. in that part of the world. So 7 p.m., Friday evening, and he would go until the next evening. So sunset Friday, it would end sunset Saturday. And because the Sabbath laws prevented any kind of work on the Sabbath, it meant that the moment Jesus died at 3 p.m., they would have had a maximum of about four hours to get him down from the cross, wrap up his body, anoint his body, prepare the funeral procession, and bury him in the tomb. It would have been a race against time to organize and finish the funeral procession before the sun went down. But what's the point of explaining all of this? It's important because it, it actually helps us understand what's going on in verses 1 and 2, which read, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So there's three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, who was the mother of Jesus, and Salome. They waited until the crack of dawn on Saturday morning. And as soon as the, well, as soon as the sun came up, uh, they would have actually headed to the shops, which would have just opened for business. Oh, sorry, no, it was Sunday morning, my apologies. Sabbath goes from Friday to Saturday evening, so Sunday morning, rather, at the crack of dawn. They went to the shops, shops would have been closed on Saturday, open Sunday, they bought the spices, and then they go on a journey to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body. And anointing the body of a dead body, oh, sorry, anointing a dead corpse, rather, uh, was a process that was actually meant to be done before the body is buried. Uh, it's kind of to give it a nice smell before the body starts decomposing. Uh, but if you remember, they were in a race against time on Friday afternoon. They didn't have time to go through the formalities, including the anointing of the body. And so although the body had probably begun decomposing, out of love, these three women 
they still want to go through the anointing process. But as they're heading over to the tomb, uh, they're actually aware of a big problem that they're going to face when they arrive at the tomb. And the problem is shared through that question that they ask each other. Who's going to roll the stone away from us or stop the stone away from the entrance for us? Because the tomb of Christ, it was sealed with this giant round stone. Verse 4 tells us it was a large stone. And in the Greek, that word large is that word mega. Again, that we saw at the end of chapter 4 when uh, Mark used it to describe a mega storm. And so not only would they have to worry about the size of the stone, but another thing they had to worry about was of the way that the stone was rolled across the entrance. Because it wasn't a flat surface. The way these tombs were created was that they'd create a divot, an angle on each side. So when they'd roll the stone across the entrance of the tomb, it'd fall and lock into place on this divot. So not only would the giant stone have to be rolled away, but they would need an immense amount of strength to be able to lift it out of the divot if they were to access the tomb. A stone that was mega in size would require mega in power to be able to move. And they're worried about this, but they find when they arrive that the, the, the stone's already been rolled away. The entrance is open, and they probably thought, lucky us. Um, and they entered the tomb, thinking, okay, well, the stone's open. We can anoint the body now. It might be decomposing, but let, let's go through with this, because we, we loved Jesus. However, as they enter the tomb, they realize that there's no body. It's empty. And in fact, instead of a dead body, there's a young guy in a white robe who the scriptures tell us was an angel. And he's just having a casual sit down. And this angel says to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. You know, uh, often when people study the resurrection, they notice that these women were the first ones to go to the tomb. And a lot of people look at these women going to the tomb and they have this tendency to equate it as an act of faith. Uh, I personally think it was an act of courage, but I'm not convinced that it was an act of faith. Um, because the journey, this journey, if you, if you look at Mark's gospel, the purpose of the, this journey was actually to anoint the body. Um, if you read through the gospels, you'll find that Jesus, he actually told his disciples beforehand that he's going to die. And he told his disciples beforehand, I'm going to rise again. Um, you know, Matthew 16, 21, he says to his disciples, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to, to his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so having shared this with his followers, his followers should have been aware that that tomb was going to be empty. But these women came to the tomb not expecting it to be empty, but expecting to find a dead body. And we know this because they brought spices to anoint the dead body. These women, it might have been an act of courage, 
but they came out of love, not faith. And so this angel reminds them what Jesus had told them. And he explains to them, you know, Jesus told you he was going to rise again, that he's going to be alive. He is alive. He's not here because he's risen. And then he commissions them to go to the disciples and to Peter and tell them to head to Galilee. Now, if you read through Mark's gospel, you'll know that Peter is singled out here. And the reason most likely is because out of all the disciples, Peter probably felt the full weight of guilt having denied Jesus three times. Uh, if you read through the Gospels, this was the one guy that said, you know what, I, I'm not going to betray you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm willing to lay my life down. On, you know, I'm willing to, to die on the cross with you even. Uh, and he was the first one to deny not only being a follower, but he's like, I don't even know this guy. And yet, for his cowardice and lack of faith, the message that God commissions the women to take to the disciples and to Peter wasn't a message of condemnation. I probably would have sent a message of condemnation if I was Jesus. But it wasn't a message of condemnation, but restoration. And even for the women, they didn't come to the tomb as an act of faith. They came fully expecting a dead body instead of a resurrection. But God's messenger doesn't greet them with condemnation for failing to believe in the promises of Jesus. But he greets them with words of peace. Not, how dare you? But don't be afraid. And so these three women, they're commissioned with the mission to go and tell the disciples and Peter about the resurrection and to tell them, not only has Jesus risen, we want you to meet him in Galilee. And this whole thing, understandably, must have been a lot to take in. Uh, and the passage tells us in Mark's gospel that they ran, they fled uh, in fear. And that their initial reaction wasn't to go and tell the disciples, but they didn't tell anyone anything because they were afraid. And that's how the passage ends. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Now, whenever an Easter sermon is preached from a pulpit, um, I've noticed a tendency, and this isn't sort of a condemnation against other preachers, but one thing I've noticed is that a lot of preachers, when they preach an Easter sermon, they'll spend about 80 to 90% of their sermon talking about the cross, talking about the death of Christ, and then they might spend one or two minutes slapping the resurrection on at the end of their sermon. Um, but I would argue that whenever the gospel is preached, uh, the resurrection should be of primary importance. And it's apparent, it's apparent to the Apostle Paul that he considered the resurrection to be of primary importance. Because if you read in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished or they've died for nothing. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if there's no resurrection, then we of all people are most to be pitied. In other words, according to the Apostle Paul, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're wasting our time. We're idiots for following a dead Messiah. When it comes to the gospel, the resurrection is everything. However, if you're like me, 
you might have come to a place where you ask, why? Why is the resurrection so important? Like, if you think about it, you know, I remember when I was an atheist and I came to faith in Christ, I asked that question, why is the resurrection so important? If Jesus died on the cross and he died so that I might be cleansed, that's enough, right? Through the death of cross, uh, through the death of Christ on the cross, I receive forgiveness and cleansing from my sins, don't I? And so if I'm forgiven and cleansed through the cross, if by him dying and shedding his blood, I am cleansed and forgiven, why is it so important that he rises again? Isn't the death enough? Well, not quite. If you read through the Gospels and you see before Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll find that the Gospel writers record a prayer that Jesus prays. And in Mark's version, it says in chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for, for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, remove this cup from me. Have you ever wondered what this cup is? What does this cup represent? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that the cup, this symbol of a cup, is actually symbolic. It represents the wrath, punishment, and judgment from the Father. Jeremiah 25, 15, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And so when Jesus asks for this cup to be removed from him, he's referring to this cup of wrath that was designated for humanity because of their sins. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. And so this cup that signifies judgment, wrath, punishment, and ultimately death for you and I. Jesus is asking God, this road to Calvary, being whipped to within an inch of my life so that my bowels are exposed, stripped naked, nailed to a cross naked in front of everyone, spear through the side to cause my heart to explode. This is going to suck big time. And he's praying to the Father, if there's any other way to save humanity, if there's any other way to save people from their sins, now's probably going to be a good time to tell me because this cup, this road that I'm going to go down is going to hurt a lot. But we know that the answer from heaven, the answer from the Father in response to this prayer was silence. There is no other way. And so Christ, in obedience, goes to that cross to symbolically drink down the cup of death that was meant for us. This cup that contained judgment, wrath, punishment, death for my sins. And not just my sins in the past, but sins present and future. So going back to that question, why is the resurrection so important? It's important because if Christ did not rise again from the dead, we have no assurance 
that this cup is now empty, do we? If Christ didn't rise again from the dead, we have no certainty that the wages of sin, which is death, has been satisfied and paid for in full. And so the resurrection for all followers of Jesus is our assurance that Christ has taken the wrath, the death on our behalf, and drunk it down completely so that he hands that cup back completely empty. There's not a single drop left Because Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of sins, but sin singular. One sin is enough to damn an individual to an eternity in hell. But there isn't even one. Not a single drop is left because Christ has drunk it down fully. There's no remaining debt. And because there's no remaining debt, there's no death in this cup anymore. And because there's no death in this cup anymore, there is no death that can keep Jesus in the grave. The resurrection of Christ is the seal and the guarantee and the assurance that this cup is now empty. That the punishment for sins past, present and future has been measured out completely and perfectly. It's been satisfied completely and perfectly. And for those who trust in the person and work of Christ and place our faith in this resurrection, it means we're free forever. It means when we sin in the future, it's not a surprise to God. It's not like Christ was hanging on the cross and thought, oh, if I knew Nathan was going to sin tomorrow, I wouldn't have gone to the cross. No, he's measured it out so that the moment you breathe your final breath, even the sin you commit before you die, Christ had measured it out on Calvary, and it was paid for. Now, there's other reasons why the resurrection is important. It's important because the Bible prophesied that the Messiah that would come would be an everlasting king. Uh, It's a bit hard to convince people that the king is everlasting if he's dead. But it's important to remember, I think most importantly, that through Christ. The resurrection means that that cup is empty. And because that cup is empty, it means that for us, this life isn't the end. It means that there's a forever after this life that is so much bigger than the hundred years, if we're lucky, that we have on this earth. And because there's a forever after this that never ends, that forever should transform the way we live our life today. It should change the way we see everything. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, writing to Christians living in difficult circumstances, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the labor of the Lord is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. And even in today's passage, you know, when we, when we look to Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome, uh, and they witnessed the empty tomb and the resurrected Christ, you know, we saw that they encountered the angel who had to remind them that Jesus rose again from the dead. Their immediate response, for me, was one of failure. They ran away. They were told to believe in the resurrection. They failed to believe in the resurrection. They were told to tell the disciples that Jesus had risen after they saw the empty tomb, and they ran away and didn't do it. 
immediately. And when we look at that, uh, I think it's easy to be critical of that. And I think it's easy to talk about what the right, what right reaction should have been. Um, but I think an important question we should ask ourselves this Easter is, what has been my reaction to the resurrection up until now? When I think about that empty tomb of Christ the man really suffering, really dying, and really rising again from the dead, how has that shaped the way I live for the kingdom? Has that shaped it at all? When I look to the Bali Nine and I remember Andrew Chan and the life that he lived, I see someone that allowed the power of the resurrection to shape his life. Someone who lived out the remaining days of his life through the lenses of eternity. You see, when his execution date drew near, uh, and news articles, media outlets were just pumping articles about his coming death, and even after he died about his execution, uh, there were a mixture of comments that I read on Facebook and social media. Uh, a lot of them were pleading for clemency and mercy, you know, he's a young guy, he was a young guy. And then the other half of the people were like, he deserves to die. He deserves everything he gets coming towards him because he was trying to bring drugs into the country and drugs have ruined so many families and lives. And I think both of them were right. But for Andrew, having given his life to Christ and allowed the resurrection to shape his life, he genuinely repented of his sins, genuinely gave his life to Christ, and he spent the remainder of his life sharing the gospel to other inmates. And even as he was led to his death and walked out to the firing squad, tied to a pole, uh, the reports that emerged after was that he died singing the words to that great hymn, Amazing Grace. He died smiling. He died with an expectation, knowing what was going to come next. And so the question I want to leave with you guys today, and for myself as well, is on this day, on Resurrection Sunday, how are you going to respond to the resurrection of our King? Now, I'd like us to enter into a time of prayer and a time of reflection. Reflection on the resurrection. Reflection on what we've just examined in Mark 16. Reflection on not only what the resurrection meant to Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome, to the early disciples, and to Peter, but what it should mean for us today. Because the resurrection is the guarantee now that we have, that we're not only free, but that this life isn't the end. There is an infinite forever that comes after this. And we're living for this. We're shaping and centering the purposes of our life and banking it all on the fact that there is a forever. And so in this time of reflection, 
I want you to reflect on this idea that there is a forever. The truth that the Bible reveals that there is an eternity after this that we live for. And pray for the power of the Spirit to shape us in the decisions we make in our lives, in the interactions we have with other people, the words we choose when we speak to people. Pray for the Spirit to allow eternity to be the lenses that we look through as we live this life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we remembered on Friday the road to Calvary that Jesus willingly took to not only live the life that we couldn't live, to not only die the death that we were meant to die, but to rise again on this day so that for anyone who would choose to place their faith in Christ, to repent of their sins and place their trust completely in Him, that there is no condemnation, there is no death, there is no wrath or judgment, that our flesh has no claim on us, sin has no claim on us, death has no claim on us, and Satan has no claim on us, that we are free in Christ to live through Him and for Him. And so, Lord, I pray that on this day, Resurrection Sunday, that for myself and for FLM, that we would look not just to the cross, but to the resurrection and meditate on what this should signify for us, how this should transform the way we live life, the way we walk with the King, that the resurrection would be the lens through which we look at the world through which we look at ourselves and through which we look at you. 
Stamp eternity onto our eyeballs, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.